Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Daryl Bentley, pastor of the Detroit Metropolitan and Farmington Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now, here's Pastor Daryl. Today, I am very excited that we do have a new sermon series that we get to spend some time going through together. And so we're going to be talking about primitive godliness. And I'm going to explain a little bit more about what that is as we get further into the sermon. But I'm excited about how God is leading. He always has just this amazing way that he just blesses me. Because there's times I'll come to end of a sermon series and I'm thinking, what am I going to do next? What am I going to preach on next? And it creates not just a little bit of anxiety, right? Because you don't want to have sermons that are just disconnected, have no continuity of thought. And so I love to preach in a series because it gives us that track that we can follow as the Lord leads us through his word. So today we are going to be starting sermon number one, Primitive Godliness, A Father's Love. But before we dive in, I need to pause. I need to ask the Lord to put his special blessing upon what we would do just now as we open his word. So please pray with me. Loving Father, thank you. Thank you for just your marvelous works. Thank you for being the God who created us and sustains us. Thank you, Father, for the gift of life, for the beautiful gift of the Sabbath. And Lord, as we have mentioned, we thank you for this technology whereby we can communicate We can share your word. We can still proclaim the truths from your word. We can have that connection together. Lord, thank you. Lord, I need your help. I always need your help, and I especially feel the need for your help today, that you would send your Holy Spirit, please, to guide my words, that you would help me to know what to say and when to be silent. Father, I desire that you would be lifted up and that your people would be challenged in their faith walk with you that they would be better ingrained in your word, and that we would know how to march forward in faith in these troubling times. So Lord, please speak to my brothers and sisters, wherever they may be found today. Reach the hearts as only you can do. And Lord, may you be glorified as we spend this time in your word, for I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you back to a spring afternoon Sunny, warm, gorgeous spring afternoon in North Carolina. We were living there 2006, and we had moved back from Southern Adventist University because I had gotten orders to be deployed with the Army, and so Ginger said, you have to move me back home. I'm not interested in being stuck in College Dell while you're going to Iraq. So moved the family back home. We found a nice little place there, not too far from the Hickory Church. And we'd been doing some yard work, just cleaning up around. Ginger had been doing some things in the house. And it was getting later into the evening. It was time to start putting things away, start thinking about supper, start thinking about getting the children ready for their evening routine, you know, baths, bed, all that sort of stuff. And as Ginger and I were winding these things down, we began to gather the kids and We quickly noticed, out of three, we only had two. Where's the third one? And so, you know, at first, it's a very casual search, right? Hello, you're calling out. It's Carson. He was the one we couldn't find. Carson, you know, it's just a little casual call because surely he's just around the corner. But I made my way around the corner and still no response. I make my way around another corner of the house. Outside, still no response. Finally, I've made a loop around the house, and I still don't see him. So my assumption is, okay, he must have gone inside with Ginger. So I asked Ginger, where's Carson? Well, I don't know. I thought he was outside with you, right? And then you start moving your mind, your body, right? Your heart starts moving in this direction where it ceases being casual to now just that slight, slight little indication of panic 
starts settling into your heart. Oh, no. Now, we didn't live out in the deep country. We were in a little bedroom community there of Hickory, North Carolina, and it was not city-city, but it had streets, right? And there was a not a super busy street that ran in front of the house, but we were, I mean, kind of right on the street. There was plenty enough traffic. And then, of course, your mind starts taking that journey that no parent ever wants to take that has somebody taken my child. The panic began to set in a little more deeply. We began to call out a lot more loudly. We're calling out around the yard. I find myself making circles in the yard and checking places I've already checked. I'm looking at the little crawl space entrance there on the side of the house. I'm yelling up into there. I'm going out to the little shed. Ginger's inside the house, checking closets, checking bathrooms, right? Checking everywhere, or so we thought. Just before we were at the very verge of calling 911, calling and making that dreaded call, someone has taken our child, our child is missing. I felt led to just go into the bedroom one more time, the kid's bedroom, and check one more time. And as I went in there and looked, I happened to look down under the edge of the bed, and who did I find lying under the edge of the bed who had heard us calling? Heard us calling his name over and over and over. Carson, Carson. Had not made a peep. Had not made a sound. Well, needless to say, he was removed from under the bed very abruptly. Not painfully, but abruptly. And you know, you're asking, you find yourself in this moment of great frustration because you've just put my heart in a place it shouldn't have gone, and I'm calling you, why didn't you answer me? But you're also, that's mixed with this, this great relief, right, of being able to embrace your child and to hold them in your arms, to know that no one has taken them, that they're right there. And you ask, I ask, did you hear us calling? Yeah, Daddy. Why didn't you answer? Well, I thought we were playing hide and seek. So what for us was very serious to him was just a game, right? There were two perspectives at play. Could you agree? Two perspectives at play, right? You've got the perspective of he thought it was just a game and it was a perfect hiding spot apparently because over and over and over and over, he hears us going around the house making these calls. He does not respond. So in his mind, Oh, just hunker down. (laughs) Right, they can't find me. I found the perfect spot. So in his mind, he has found wild success. But we were aware of abduction stories. We're aware, we're praying that our child has not fallen victim to such. On the one end, there was a carefree, I'm having a fun time. That mentality's at play. On the other hand, there's this love of a father, love of a mother, knew that dangers lurk in this world and were praying beyond our wildest dreams that he would just be returned. As I think about our situation on this earth, it's sort of the same. You and I live here on this earth, and many times we are unaware of the spiritual danger that lurks near us or seeks to devour us. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that such is the case. I want to take your mind to 1 Peter Chapter 5 and verse 8. First Peter, chapter 5 and verse 8. And as you find your way there, we are told, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, who does it say your adversary is? It's spelled out in the scripture. Who does it say it is? It says it's the devil, right? And what does it say that he's doing? It says that he's walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Back in 2013, I had the privilege of doing a mission trip with Share Him Ministries and Southern Adventist University. We went to Botswana, to the city of Maun. It's in the kind of the northwestern corner of Botswana. It's there where the Okavanga Delta, right? The deltas where the river kind of comes and begins to spread out into these fingers. We were there in Maun, and of course, we're near bushland. I've always wanted to go to Africa, and so I began to ask, how hard would it be 
for us to go on one of these little safaris because I knew just a few miles north of town was what they referred to as the buffalo fence, and it was to keep the wildlife out in the wild, and they could live somewhat civilized without worrying about it. Got it worked out. We take these two trucks that we rent. They're open-sided trucks with all these benches. They're safari vehicles, right? And we're there, and it was incredible. If you've ever been to a zoo, imagine being on the other side of the fence in the zoo and riding around in a truck. That's what a safari is. It was incredible. I saw a herd of giraffe. If you've never seen a herd of giraffe, especially when they get spooked, they run in this very loping, kind of just odd run. It's just incredible to watch. Their long, slender necks, you just think that they're going to fall over at any second because their center of gravity is off. I saw a herd of elephants, at least 25 elephants, large, small, walking, trumpeting, throwing the dust with their snouts playing in the water. It was beautiful. Saw more zebra. I used to think they were zebras. Nick, I found out that they're pronounced zebras. And when I questioned the guy, he asked me, he said, well, how many do you have native in the United States? I said, well, I don't guess any. He said, well, I guess they're zebras then, aren't they? So now in my mind, I can't even say the word zebra without feeling his rebuke. But there were all these zebras, just beautiful. The guy driving the truck told us, he said, be careful. Don't step outside of this truck unless it's a place that we tell you it's safe to do so. Why? Well, who's the king of the jungle? Right? Well, according to all the cartoons and the stories, the lion's the king of the jungle, right? And we knew. He told us, be careful. Those lions could be lurking right there in the weeds, in the tall grass, and you wouldn't even know it. And they can pounce on you and rip you to shreds before you even knew what was happening. And that little reminder came in clear focus as we drove by and saw a few carcasses of some water buffaloes who were not quick enough to escape the lion's grasp. You know, friends, the devil is that lion, right? He wants to devour us. He's lurking. He's sneaking. He's deceptive. We know that he is cunning. We know that he has an understanding of human behavior far beyond our own comprehension. And he's been studying human behavior for upwards of 6,000 years. If you don't think he can predict what we're going to do, then you're not been paying attention. He knows his prey, and you and I are his prey, and the Bible says he wants to devour us. Yet you and I also have a father who knows the lion, (laughs) He knows the characteristics of the lion, and he knows the lion because he created the lion. He didn't cause him to become corrupt. He didn't cause him to become sinful. He didn't turn him into the adversary. Satan chose that on his own, but the Lord knows our enemy. And as a good father, he has a definite advantage, doesn't he? Because he knows how to keep us safe from the lion. Our father has that advantage also over me as an earthly dad. He doesn't look and seek after me not knowing where I am, right? You see, that day I'm looking for Carson. I'm looking for my son. I couldn't see through the walls. I couldn't just intuitively or omnisciently know he's under the bed. For him, this is just a big game. I'd had that unknown, and I love that my heavenly father, he does not function in unknowns. Can you say amen to that? He doesn't function in I don't know. He doesn't function in I don't understand. He is not constricted by those human elements. We have a father that is far superior. Unlike me who wandered around the same piece of my yard over and over, right? I mean, it's foolish. I know I've been here, but yet somehow there's comfort or feel like I'm accomplishing something. Go back and check the same place. And I can't tell you how many times at camp meeting, I've heard the call go out over the radio, missing child. Camp meeting goes on lockdown. Can't tell you how many times we have gone And that child was lying sound asleep in their bed. Kid just got tired and went and laid down. When does that ever happen, (laughs) right? Or they went and laid down at grandma's. So we've learned over the years at camp meeting, if we're told a child is missing, guess the first place we're checking? Their own camper. And some parents look at us like we're fools, but they don't know where we've been. But you see, friends, God's not restricted in that way. We have a father who knows our enemy. He knows that we are his prey. And he knows how to protect us. And the thing I love about our father 
is he's not restricted as we are as humans. He has that ability to see everything. I want to take you with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, one of my favorite passages. Hebrews, let's go to chapter 4, and I want you to land with me in verse 13, please. Lots of beautiful things that we could read here. We just read verse 12 for Sabbath school. It was our memory text this week. But notice verse 13, there is no creature, how many creatures? No creature hidden from his sight, speaking of the Lord God, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So friends, you and I may try to play this game of hide and seek. There's no creature though that is hidden from his eyes. And we've been trying to play this hide and seek ever since the Garden of Eden but it just hasn't worked out because you can't hide from God. You can't run from God. You can try. I mean, how'd that work out for Jonah? Jonah was given a mission. He was told to go to Nineveh. He buys passage on a ship to go somewhere else. Was he headed to Tarsus, I believe it was? How'd that work out for him? He gets thrown overboard, swallowed up by a giant fish, puked up on a beach a few days later. You can't run from the Lord. But I love that even though you can't hide from God, he knows where you are, I love how Jesus described his mission while he was here on earth. Look with me, if you would, in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 19 and verse 10. Gospel of Luke, chapter 19 and verse 10. Jesus describes his mission. He says, for the Son of Man has come to, do you see the word there? It's what? to seek, right? To seek and to save that which was lost. And friends, we recognize that he's not saying this in the context of not knowing where to look, not knowing how to find us. He's saying this in the context of he's working with the hearts of men. So we serve a father. We have a father who knows where we are. He knows how to find us. And I love that Jesus understood his mission. He tells us in John 4.34 that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I've asked us in recent times, do we know our purpose? Do we know why God has called us to be here? Jesus certainly knew his. In other words, Jesus is telling us that he is seeking the lost as part of the Father's plan. And it's not just some plan that the Father came up with and handed down to Jesus. Jesus was part of the planning in the first place. You see, Jesus wasn't just some created being who came to die on our behalf. He is God. He is God who has always existed. He existed in a different way prior to taking on the human form and taking on the name Yeshua, Jesus, that we would say in English. But it was his plan too. He and the Father are one in their divinity, one in their mission, one in their purpose. And so my point is, one of the most basic principles of the Christian experience is that we have a Father in heaven who adores us. Amen? We have a Father in heaven who adores us, and He loves us. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 tells us He loves us with a certain kind of love. The Bible describes it as an everlasting love. See, many times our love is quite fickle. It's quite conditional, right? And I love you as long as you don't offend me right? I love you as long as you support me. I love you perhaps as long as you go along with my plans. We have a love many times that's very conditional. I love you as long as I come to church and you're not sitting in my favorite spot. Heard the story one time of a couple who visited a new church. They came in and sat down in the church place. No one was sitting and it wasn't too long before someone came up to them and said, excuse me, you're sitting in our seat. I can't fathom doing that to someone. Fortunately, the people who were visiting had the courage to say, well, let us know how it normally is because we're going to enjoy it today. In other words, get over yourself, right? Don't come in here bullying somebody. Sit down. It doesn't matter really where you sit. Now, I'll be honest with you. Even when I'm not speaking, I like to sit up a little closer to the front because I don't have to worry about distractions. And that's where I like to encourage people to sit. I heard somebody say one time, if you're not the lead dog, the view never changes, right? So get up there where you can get the bugs in the teeth kind of view. But why? Why does any of this matter? 
Who cares? I know some of you may be asking, okay, pastor, listen, we get it. This is basic stuff. Why are you boring us with basic stuff? Well, friends, I want to draw your attention to where we are in the stream of time. And as I think about where we are, as I think about what's going on in our world, I want you to think back to March of this year. Now, today is May 2nd, yes or no? So today being May 2nd, that means that we've just finished on Thursday, the month of April, right? And what came before April? March, right? So just a couple months ago, let's go back, in fact, to the first Sabbath of March. I remember that first Sabbath in March. It was the Sabbath just before I left to go to Cuba. March 7th was the last Sabbath I preached before going to Cuba. I left Sunday, March 8th to go to Cuba and then didn't get back until like the 22nd, 23rd. But what if it was March 7th? And what if I had told you on March 7th that in two weeks you would have to stay home pretty much for the most part for the next eight to 10 weeks or longer? What would you have said to me? Well, pastor, you're crazy. Well, what if I told you two months ago you're going to have to stay home because some deadly virus is going to be killing mass numbers of people, and we really don't even know how it's transmitted, but you could be putting yourself and your family at risk just by going outside. What would you have said to me if I had told you that? What if I had told you first Sabbath in March that Michigan Conference camp meeting was going to have to be canceled because of that virus? What if I had told you that this year's general conference session would be canceled because of the same virus. Would you have believed me? What if I said to you that unemployment would be rising from 4.1% at the middle of March to about 27 to 28% by May 1st, and that Michigan would have the third highest unemployment rate in the country? Would you have believed me? What if I had told you at the beginning of March that we would not have church together in person for two months because of an order from the governor, or that you would be required to wear a face mask as you entered most businesses, or that you'd not be allowed to go out to eat at a restaurant, or that the most sought-after commodity would be toilet paper. With all of these things mentioned, you would have called me an alarmist and quite possibly a nut job if I had told you these things were coming. But now they are a living reality, are they not? They are things that are here, and many of us are left wondering, where is the end? When will this be lifted? All the focus. You know, at first, everybody was right on board, right? Okay, they want us to stay at home for a little bit. Hey, I've been wanting some time home anyway. This would be a good time to spend with the family. And some people have been doing that, right? They've been enjoying that extra family time. That's very positive. That's a beautiful thing. Some people who have been romanticized by the idea of working from home have realized that working from home is not always the best scenario, right? Uh, There's something about, there's a trigger in many people's minds that I need to leave home to go into work mode, right? And so it's been a major transition. There's been a lot of emotional stress for people. These things are our reality. And it leaves us asking some very important questions. And one of the ones that have come to my heart is, what are the implications of these things for the people of God, for God's followers? And friends, please know, I am never, never wanting to be the person who's the alarmist. I don't want to feed fear in any way. I don't want to be the chicken little to say that the sky is falling. I don't want to be that person. But the Lord has tried to warn us that some troublesome times are coming. And so how does this experience that we're facing with this COVID-19, this pandemic, right? It's not just an epidemic, it's a pandemic, right? Pan being added to it means that it crosses many boundaries. So it's a pandemic. It's that epidemic that is at worldwide scale now. I've received pictures from friends in Cuba wearing their masks and seeing some of the changes in their life. But the Bible has tried to warn us that there will be times of trouble. I want you to just take a little trip with me, if you would, please. We're going to start in the book of Job. 
We're going to Job 38 and beginning in verse 22. Job 38, beginning in verse 22. And in this particular passage, of course, we know the story of Job a little bit, right? He's had these major losses in his life. He's experienced personal tragedy with losing his kids, with losing possessions. He's feeling tragedy in his own person, the different health things that were happening with him, and he's being challenged in his faith, right? And that's what the devil wanted. He wanted to get him to the point where he questioned God and turned his back on God. And Job starts questioning God a little bit, and the Lord asks him, kind of earlier on in the passage, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, right? And so this passage is part of that litany of questions the Lord is asking Job, and he asks him in verse 22, have you entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hell, H-A-I-L, right, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? The Lord's trying to perhaps give a little insight. There will be some times of trouble. Speaking of which, let's go to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Last chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel 12 and verse 1. And what does it say here? It says, at that time, Michael, whom we know to be another name for Jesus, it was his pre-incarnation name, not an angel. He's the leader of God's angels. But at that time, Michael should stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a what? It says a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So notice what it says. There's going to be a time of trouble that's coming that's like nothing that's ever happened. But the indication even from that statement is that there are other times of trouble that have happened. Yes or no? We can see that. It's implied in the text. Revelation eleven nineteen speaks about, and it ties together with Daniel 12, 1. So go with me, please, to Revelation 11 and verse 19. Again, just taking a little journey here, seeing where some of these things are mentioned in the Scripture. Now, in verse 15, it starts talking about the seventh angel sounding his trumpet, And of course, this seventh trumpet that's being sound, I'm not going to get into all of the trumpets, but we can see that there are loud voices heard in heaven, verse 15, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. We can see that the nations are angry in verse 18, but this is in that cataclysmic, right, that end time scenario where things are about to wrap up, all things of earth are about to culminate. Notice verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The Ark of His Covenant was seen in His temple. And then notice what's associated with that as well. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hell. We could explore other passages in Revelation, and we could see very clearly that as Jesus comes, when He comes at the second coming, this world is in turmoil. Revelation even says that every island is moved out of its place. Every city is broken down, right? These are going to be things that are incredible times of trouble. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that these things were coming. Remember that good father, that message that says, I want to look after you. I care about you. I know there's an enemy trying to destroy you. Jesus wanted his followers to know. So go with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus is describing, and we'll pick up in verse 19, Matthew 24 and verse 19. They were asking the question, because Jesus told them, you're going to look at this beautiful temple you're describing, not one stone's going to be left upon another. And so they calculate very quickly, going back to some of that math, right? They make the calculation very quickly. If these stones are going to be thrown down, not one left upon another, it must be the end of the world. So they ask him, what will be the sign What do we look for for the coming of the end of the world? And so Jesus begins to lay out these signs with many of Adventists are very familiar. But he comes down and he's talking about troublesome times. He says, but woe to those, verse 19, who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Interesting. Jesus is giving something in an end time context and he Praise that we don't have to make our flight on the Sabbath. Hmm, seems to indicate maybe he wanted us to keep the Sabbath, doesn't it? Well, it's not my point for today, but just throwing that out there for free. 
for then there will be great tribulation. Now notice how this wording in the next sentence talks about and sounds very much like Daniel 12, right? Such as not has been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So he's talking about a great time of trouble. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And there's more that we could point to, right, that speaks to the coming destruction of this earth. But I want to take you back to his words. Go down just a little further to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so, friends, I want to share with you kind of something else that's happening here in Matthew 24. As you study this entire passage, and we don't have time to break all of it down today, But what Jesus is masterfully doing is he is telling them about end-time events, but he's also trying to prepare them for the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, of course, was a city on a hill, fortified city, a place at the crossroads of trade. It was the earthly Zion, if you will. It was where God's chosen people were told to be, to establish a city for God. And it was one of those places that were often the scene of attack, the target of attack. And so in AD 66, that very thing was threatened. The Roman armies came and they looked as if they were going to attack the holy city, the Jerusalem of God's people. They didn't take the opportunity to attack, but the Christians saw it as a warning. And they saw it as a warning you know what? Jesus told us that something was going to happen in this city, that no stone would be left upon another as it relates to the temple compound. And so maybe this is our time that we need to get out of the city. And so all of the Christians in that time period, they actually took it as a warning and they took that opportunity to leave the city and they fled. Well, in AD 70, just a few years later, the Roman armies returned. And when they returned, friends, this time there was nothing that held them back. They laid siege on the city. They attacked the city. The temple was supposed to be spared. It was a beautiful compound. But inside that temple, Herod's temple, the walls were covered with gold. There was gold everywhere. It was beautiful. It was elaborate. But the temple was caught on fire inadvertently. And as gold gets hot, what does it do? It melts. And if I'm not mistaken, gold's a relatively soft metal, is it not? has a fairly low melting point. And so as the temple burned, the gold melted. And the gold melted and it went down between the rocks. And guess what you have to do to those rocks to get down to the gold? They can't be left one upon another. So the record of history bears out that what Jesus said was true. But here's the point that I really want to draw from that. When they laid siege to the city, when they began to starve them out, and you can read in the annals of Josephus, about the atrocities that were committed by those Jews who were put under those conditions. Some of them were eating their own children. It was inhumane. It was unbelievable. But the bigger picture is that the Christians who listened to the words of Jesus left the city, and the record of history tells us not a single Christian lost their lives in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Wow. Well, so pastor, what are you talking about? How does that have any bearing on us today? Well, I want to bring you back to our topic of returning to what has been referred to as primitive godliness. Friends, I wish that I was smart enough to have come up with that on my own. But there's a little quote that I want to share with you. And it's one that I discovered in my own studies. And Nick, it's from the book Great Controversy that we talked about during Sabbath school. And Most of you who are familiar with my preaching, you know I don't use a lot of Spirit of Prophecy quotes because I want to keep you in the Word of God. I want to challenge you to know the Word of God. But I want to show you where I got this phrase so that you can see the little bit of the context. And 
course, you need to go read a little more broadly yourself. It says, before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. And so as I look at this strange world in which we find ourselves, right, and it has become a strange world in a very short period of time, I cannot help but wonder if this virus and how we have had to learn how to live with it around the world at this time is to prepare us for what's to come. Well, friends, I have not been given a prophetic utterance from the Lord. I'm simply trying to look at what I see before me, what I see poured out in the Scriptures, what I see revealed to us in the Scripture, and asking the question, how prepared were you when COVID-19 hit? I can tell you I wasn't super prepared. I was on a mission trip, trapped in another country, trying to just finish my mission. I start getting word from that country's government through the local people. Hey, you got to get out of here. They're going to close the borders and they're throwing everybody out. And if you don't get out by a certain window, you're stuck here indefinitely. And then I'm thinking, I'm getting reports from my wife. I'm getting pictures of things happening at home. And just want to show you just some of the things that have become the new norm. How many times a day do you hear this phrase? (laughs) Social distancing, right? And I guess six feet is the magical number. It's the farthest that droplets can travel, maybe. I don't know, right? I'm not sure how they came up with the six feet. At some places, I've heard 10 feet, right? I guess they went six feet to be a little more conservative with space and, you know. And what do we see? Social distancing, you know, you go outside your favorite place now. I went the other day, I needed to pick up a little something for the house after Home Depot was taken off of greater lockdown. I walk out to the front, what do I find? But a line of people standing on X's, right, six feet apart. You can drive by Trader Joe's. There's a line outside of Trader Joe's. People wrapped around the sidewalk. You can go by Costco. People wrapped around the sidewalk. This is a strange world. Gas stations, many gas stations don't even have their restrooms available to you. It's a strange world that we live in, right? A couple weeks back, we're doing our grocery run, and we went down the aisle, and there were no paper products. And so I thought, okay, well, the Lord will provide for us. Well, I get up there and I'm checking out and I notice behind the lady that's checking out our stuff that she has about five or six Scott tissue, about like that, stacked up behind her. And I said, ma'am, are those available? She said, yes. Would you like one? I said, yes. I said, are you just having them here so that she said, well, actually somebody came through and they had 10 in their cart. And so we took them from them. People trying to hoard still, trying to be selfish and not look out for other people. Friends, this is the world in which we find ourselves, all because something so small, you can't even see it. At least with the lion, once it jumps from the grass, at least you know what hits you maybe, right? Depending on how quickly it takes you down. But do you see this coming? Do you see that attacking you? People walk around, and it's interesting if you drive anywhere, and you don't see a lot of people out, especially a couple weeks back. It's getting more and more now, but a couple weeks back, it was pretty desolate, right? And if you did see people walking, one coming down the sidewalk, one takes a wide curve you know, to go out around them. Why? Because we don't know how much of this is floating in the air. We don't know. We've been told to sanitize packages. Ginger saw this picture on the internet where somebody thought that maybe they needed to sanitize their money. So they had this bright idea to put it in a microwave. Friends, let me tell you, that's a bad idea. Money has a magnetic strip in it. And guess how well a magnetic strip holds up in a microwave? Well, the picture showed that they had all their money and it was about three or $4,000 they tried to sanitize. When the microwave lit up, it burnt all the money in two. People are afraid of what? This little thing, this little thing, we don't know, but it's just an actual picture from the streets of New York. For those of you who have been to that major city, when are the streets ever like this? Never. In fact, what is New York referred to as? The city that never what? That never sleeps. Well, let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Detroit is certainly not New York. 
You can go down to Detroit most times and you'll find some people walking around. But we have seen this little thing cast us into fear and all this little COVID-19. But I love that God says in the midst of this, I want to call you to be faithful. I want to get you back to the basics. And really, for some of us, that's what COVID has done, right? Get you back to the basics. What's most important? Well, got to make sure my family's fed. Need to make sure I've got those groceries. Need some sort of toilet paper. Something along those lines, right? A mask. And it's gone from it needs to be some sort of industrial mask, some sort of N95 mask, to now they're cover your face with something. Put a bandana. <laughs> you know, you, it's interesting. You put on a bandana. Used to, the only people that put in a bandana to cover their face to go into a convenience store were people that were there for ill intent. Now you don't even think about it, right? In fact, you better have it on. I've seen, stopped and got some gas the other day, needed to use the restroom, got to the door, no entry without a mask. Fortunately, I had my little bandana. I was able to pull it up. It's a strange world. But I'm thankful that in the midst of thinking about all those physical basics, that God is there lovingly as our Father, calling us back also to the basics as it relates to our spiritual walk. And I love as Jesus is talking in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. Go back with me to those familiar words, John 3. John 3, go to verse 16. You know it. I know you know it. It's the verse you always see on a piece of cardboard or some sort of poster board at a ball game. What does it say? For God, what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what, saints? Everlasting life. And then we always quote John 3.16, but 17 is so powerful. I really want to encourage you to never think about John 16 again without John 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Friends, we've got COVID and everything else that's trying to condemn the world, right? The devil's tools that he's trying to use to destroy us, to put fear in our hearts, to turn our minds away from God, to get us so focused on our jobs and our livelihoods and our safety that I'm not thinking about other things, but I am thankful in the midst of all of this. There are many people saying, I need something more than the security this world offers. I need the security of a loving Heavenly Father because He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You see, friends, I believe that for far too long we've been playing hide-and-seek with the Lord. As I said, it began in the garden when they attempted to hide themselves from the Lord, and we've been trying to hide ever since. He knows where we are, and He only seeks us because He loves us. He wants us to be in heaven with Him. I mean, and think about it. What a beautiful promise. He loves us more abundantly than we can even fathom. His love caused Him to create us. Now, get this in your head. His love caused Him to create us even though he knew that we would rebel against him. As I ponder that point over and over in my Christian experience, I am left with this idea that God not only loves me, he's in love with the idea of me. Right? He doesn't just love me, which I know he does, but he knew that I would be a failure in one regard as a sinner. He knew that Adam would cast this race into sin. Even though he didn't have to, that was his choice. Eve was deceived, but Adam chose to sin. God could have looked at it and said, you know what? That's going to be too much of a train wreck. It's going to cause too much heartache. I'm not going to follow through with the plan. But he says, no, I'm in love with the idea of my creation that I'm going to create in my image. He loved us so much that it caused him to sacrifice his own son to redeem us. His love is going to give us a thousand years in heaven to live with him. Nick, Daniel, Rick, I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like I could use a little vacation after all this. (laughs) 
talk to Ginger. You know, we've been daydreaming just a little bit. If we could just take off for a little bit after all this craziness, where would we go? You know, and we daydream about little different places, things we could do. Maybe you guys are doing that too in your minds, taking those little mental vacations, planning where you might like to be. But think about it. A thousand years in heaven? Revelation 20 talks about a thousand years that we get to spend in heaven with our God, our heavenly Father. And his love will also give us a new earth where we can live with him for eternity. And friends, if his love is big enough to accomplish all that, I believe his love is big enough to carry me through COVID-19. What do you say? I don't want you to be afraid of that little virus. Friends, I don't want you to be afraid. COVID-19 has wreaked havoc. Yes, it has tried to change us, tear our world apart. And I believe that our God is big enough to carry us through and to save us from a COVID-19 or whatever else hell can throw at us. In fact, what did Jesus tell us in Matthew 16, 18? He said that he's establishing his church. He's talking to the disciples. And he says, I'm going to establish my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Friends, who's the church? <laughs> We're the church. Amen? And if you and I have the love of God at work in our lives, then the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. Amen? Whether it comes in the form of COVID or some other malady, some other epidemic, some other pestilence, the devil's going to throw everything he has at us. But we have a God who has told us that we will prevail if we stick with him. So how is it with you today, saints? Is your life secure in the love of God? Do you desire to return to a state of primitive godliness in preparation for what will eventually come upon this earth? I know that my life is cluttered with a lot of distractions. Maybe your life is too. But I want that clutter cleared away. The way my mind's wired is when I go in to do something at my desk, whether it's something I'm doing at home or here in the church office, I can't work in a mess. Are you wired that way at all, Nick? I mean, he likes to go into my office and move things around just to mess with me. And I'm just the type of person that when I go in, it's hard for my mind to function if I've just got clutter and stacks of stuff. And I've heard some people say, well, this is a mess, but it's an organized mess. Well, God bless you. I just can't work that way. I have to have things kind of put away so that my mind can function. But I believe most of us are like that when it comes to our spiritual existence. If things are too cluttered around the altar of my heart, God's going to get lost in the clutter. And I really, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that this call back to primitive godliness has to start with a recognition that we have a Father who loves us and letting Him have that place of supreme authority upon the throne of the heart. Not letting my employment, not letting my retirement income, not letting concern for toiletries, concern for food, concern for all these other things. What did Jesus tell us? In Matthew 6, do you remember? He said, after all these things, the Gentiles are clamoring for. But what did he say to us? He said, I want to encourage you to do what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what did he say? All these other things will be added to you. So friends, I'm not saying that you don't need to plan and make sure you can buy groceries or find a way to feed your family. I'm not saying we don't need to think about those things, that we don't need to be diligent planners. I believe in those things, but I also believe in spiritual planning. And if I'm not making a spiritual plan, I'm essentially planning to fail spiritually. So I'm calling you today to return to a stage, a point, a state of primitive godliness. Let's get back to the basics of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian to have the love of God supreme in our lives and allow his love to clear away all the clutter from around the heart. What do you say, friends? Is that your desire today? To let Jesus, let the Father have that place of supremacy on the throne of your heart. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, Lord, I know that too many times I allow distractions 
clutter to rob me of that experience that you would long for me to have. Many times I allow my own desires, my own ambition to get in the way of my relationship with you. And Father, I don't want that. I want you to have the place of first love in my heart. Lord, I know that your word tells me that you love me with an everlasting love and you have drawn me with just that type of love that never gives up. So Lord, I pray that today my heart would respond to your love, that the hearts of my brothers and sisters would respond to your love. Yes, it may feel basic and pastor, we know this. Why are you talking about this? But Lord, if we know it and don't practice it, of what use is it? And Father, I don't know if COVID-19 is the prelude to greater destruction. But Lord, I know how ill-prepared I was and much of the rest of the world was when this thing hit. And it's a time to take stock, to get prepared, to be ready, and to let our dependence not be on governments and structures, but our dependence to be upon you. So Father, help us. Yes, we live in a society and we have to participate as faithful citizens. But Lord, we don't want to participate to the point where we leave your side. Where we forget Jesus' mandate to give Caesar what is his, but give God what is his. So Lord, may you have that place of first affection in our hearts today. Forgive us where we have failed you. Lord, and while we know and understand a lot of things, help us to know and understand the basics. Lead us in this time together as we continue to learn what it means to have primitive godliness. And I thank you, Father, for guiding us in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Daryl Bentley, pastor of the Detroit Metropolitan and Farmington Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Detroit Metropolitan Seventh-day Adventist Church at 15585 North Haggerty Road in Plymouth, Michigan, and the worship service starts at 1045 a.m. Or visit the Farmington Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 29831 West 10 Mile Road in Farmington Hills, Michigan, and their worship service starts at 1115 a.m. 